Today on episode number 179 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Paul Blowers discusses active learning in STEM courses. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today's guest comes as a part of Teaching in Higher Ed's partnership with AQ, the Association of College and University Educators. Every single time AQ recommends a guest for Teaching in Higher Ed, I'm completely blown away by the person's teaching excellence. Today is no different as I have a chance to introduce you to Paul Blowers. Paul is a university distinguished professor in the Chemical and Environmental Engineering Department at the University of Arizona. For the past 18 years, Paul has taught introductory and upper-level chemical engineering courses and has deeply integrated an active learning approach to his classroom with great success, as you'll hear about so much in this episode. He also has many academic involvements in the university, like being a co-principal investigator on an NSF project to help other faculty be successful in the collaborative learning spaces that have been built at the University of Arizona in the last several years. He is focused on improving education and helping facilitate faculty learning communities to improve student retention through scalable and low-cost interventions that any faculty member can deploy. His other academic interests involve using life cycle assessment research to identify how to reduce environmental footprints of nearly every aspect of personal decisions. Paul, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Hey, thanks for having me. When I heard about your classroom and your whole philosophy and methodology of teaching, the first thing I was hoping we could spend a little bit of time talking about is how did you first get interested in active learning? And and is there any kind of a dramatic before and after story? Or was this always something that you kind of thought about as you started teaching? So uh, interesting question. I did my PhD and I was required to be a teaching assistant several times and I was a very talented explainer. I didn't really engage students in the process very much. And I moved to my faculty position here at the University of Arizona and I was a very gifted lecturer. And I had two students fail my class the first time I taught the sophomore chemical introductory class. And I took it very personally. I must have failed and somehow to have created a designed experience for students that they were not successful in. And so I met with each of those students intensively the next year when they reattempted my course. Uh, they were patient and they my class was only offered once a year. And one of them went on to spectacular failure again. And then the other one, I was figuring out that he really benefited from small discussions, very small pieces of information that he could reflect on and incorporate. And he did very well the second time. And it was at about this time that I uh, was part of a workshop by Rich Felder. He's the chemical engineering education guru. Uh, and he talked about active learning, and I decided I was ready to jump. If I saw one student benefit greatly by transforming the experience into small little pieces that he could 
integrate into what he was thinking, then I would try it with everyone. So that was the impetus, two students failing and this workshop. I'm hearing a couple of things in your story. One that really piqued my curiosity was it actually involves my dissertation. I promise that I won't go too long on this, but one of the things I studied was called the locus of control. Locus of control is how we explain what happens to us. And of course, this is a very, very complex body of research, but if I'm going to completely oversimplify it, there's internal locus of control that says, these two students failed my class, and there must have been something that I could have done differently to change the outcomes for them. And then there's external locus of control. Two students failed my class. Probably they weren't prepared. Probably they didn't try very hard. And so I'm hearing one theme from you is an orientation toward what you could have done differently in your teaching. And then I'm also hearing another theme, which is so vital, I think, which would be that you found a mentor or you found some kind of a model, just just another approach that perhaps hadn't you hadn't come across before in terms of your teaching. Does any of that resonate with you? Do you, do you have that sense of, is that something you tend to do a lot where you think like, yes, I mean, it could very well, obviously you're, you're a scientist, you understand really complex things, but sometimes it, it helps because what could we have done differently as educators? Right. Uh, so yes, I have read about locus of control and how I try to foster that in students. The uh, internal locus of control is something that I've thought about a lot. And, you know, I'd never really thought about it myself in that way. But when a student fails an exam, I try and get them to focus on what they could do differently and that they can just pick themselves up and do better. And I'm never more proud than when a student fails an exam and then takes control instead of saying it was the exam's fault. No, it wasn't. There are things that they could have done, hopefully, um, and then do really well on the next exam. That can sound pretty harsh to someone who doesn't naturally have that type of reflection going on. I mean, I could imagine with a faculty same way, you if you bombed your course evaluations, oh, well, that was probably your fault. Let's talk about it. So how, how do you soften that to have it not sound so harsh to students who this might be the first time that they've had a, even an opportunity to think differently about this exam. The exam is no longer the enemy. What are some things that you do, especially on that first exam, to help them with that transition? So I am very open about my own failures. So mm-hmm. I, I dig out the first exam in chemical engineering that I received a failing grade on. And that was in transport phenomenon. And I was a sophomore taking a junior level course. And I got a a D on that exam. And I dig that out and I show it to students. And then I talk about how I fumbled my way to retrieval practice and distributed effort and distributed practice and all of these things that have emerged recently in the learning sciences, I did them all accidentally because um, I didn't have time to do anything differently. I, I started doing an extra problem every day for 15 minutes every day. And I did that seven days a week and I started going to office hours. And I'm just very open with students that I changed what I was doing because um, failure was not something I was really happy with. And I tell students right up front, I will not be defeated. And I try and get them in that same mindset. Mm. Can you describe how that first test might be different than any subsequent tests? Or are they all about the same in terms of points distribution or opportunities for feedback? Is Does the first one look any different than the rest? The first one in the sophomore course is a review of prerequisites. Uh, so it has almost no new content for the course. And it's offered, I, I typically do four or five midterms per 
15 week uh, semester. And so the first one is review and then every exam after that is cumulative and it just keeps adding more chapters of content and they're typically just one question long after the first exam. And for points, for instance, I, on the last exam, students didn't do as well as I hoped. Uh, they kept pushing the homework due date back and back and I let them until it was due the day before the exam. So there was no reflection time for the students. And I really regret that. I wish I would have insisted that the homework be due on Friday and then the exam be on Monday so that students would have had time with the solutions. So it was my fault, I messed up. And so I am offering a fifth optional exam to, and the students don't know this. Oh, if they watch the podcast or listen to this, I'm in trouble. Um, <laughs> I'm going to drop one of their uh, now five exams. I'm gonna mm. drop whichever one's lowest. They don't know that, but my intent is any student can have a bad day and I will allow them to drop the lowest one. We'll do a whole vote in class. No one ever votes against this. Um, and it, it gives them the safety net for the day they had the flu, whether it was the first exam or the fourth exam. It doesn't matter if they have an off day. It just goes away. I'm really fascinated by that because I came to the same realization that it sounds like you've come to in terms of my exams, albeit I teach quite different classes than you do. But just that ability to drop the lowest score, because I, I would find that so often they would just take that first exam as if, well, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter if I do well or not. Kind of, I mean, actually, it might be more like that. It is going to be what it's going to be. And then they would learn so much from that first experience taking the test that they would then carry through them. So I actually do way more testing now. I, I started with three exams per class, and now it's five exams per class. The first one is not a past-looking comprehensive like you described, but it's a forward-looking comprehensive because I teach a lot of foundations courses. So it's like in instructional design, they call this whole part whole teaching. So the first test is on the whole. You got to understand what are the big picture concepts in this class. And it does actually go through the entire textbook. They would have to read the couple of introductory paragraphs for each chapter to get that sense. And then they take a test on that. If they don't do well, it's not going to penalize them too much because it will be their lowest drop score. But a lot of them want to then save it up. It almost becomes they want to strategize around, oh, that doesn't really seem good because what if, like you said, I do get sick later on or what if another one doesn't go well? So I see a lot higher motivation. The other thing that I started doing, which may or not may not work well for people that are listening, but I did start to say if you do well on that comprehensive whole test that's in the beginning. I call them not so final finals because <laughs> they happen right. in about week three of a 15 week class. If you do well on that and you score above a 90%, that will be your score for your final exam. Oh, and that okay. really <laughs> kicks in. And again, wouldn't work well. If, I'm not giving advice to you specifically, Paul, or to, uh, to people, but just in case one of the themes I see you and I both reached is just the power of dropping that lower exam. And then perhaps in, at least in my case, having more exams, more opportunities to demonstrate learning. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, uh, I work with chemical engineering students who are really, really bright. And I used to tell them up front in the syllabus, I will drop your lowest one. And I would have all these awesome students do well in the first N exams. And then when we got to the N plus one, that last one, they would just throw it away because mm -hmm. they did well in the other ones. And so then they went into the final totally unprepared on the comprehensive. And so this is why I don't tell the students ahead of time that I'm going to drop one because my st st students 
like most really good students are going to game that system. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> they certainly do. And as we would do, it's not like they're so different from us because we would oh, do no. the same thing. No, absolutely. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about why you find so vital the opportunity to get your students engaged. I know that's something that you value a lot. Yeah, so I had taught in a lecture hall for most of my career until uh, U of A, University of Arizona, built these collaborative learning spaces. Uh, they're rooms that seat students at tables of in groups of four. There are screens all around. It's almost impossible to lecture in this space uh, because the students aren't looking at me. There's not even a writing surface that I can use very easily. And so I wanted to move in these spaces because when I was in a lecture hall, I would have students that would isolate themselves in those middle seats of a lecture hall. They would intentionally group together in a space where I could not get to them and probe their understanding. And some of them would sit together every day. I called it islands of incompetence. Uh, they would not be doing the homework. They would not be doing the, qu the pre-quizzes. They would show up and they would go on to spectacular failure together. And I couldn't get to them into this lecture hall. Now that I'm teaching in a space where I can get to every student, I can crouch down right next to them and I can say, what are you thinking right now? And if the student says, I don't know what to think, I'll ask them to read the statement out loud that they're thinking about or the task that I've given them. And I'll ask them if there are no words or if there are any words they don't understand. And I try to engage them. And as a result, you know, I've not had a student fall asleep in my class at all. Uh, since I moved into these collaborative learning spaces, ever. And when I see a student yawning, it's because they're physically exhausted, not because they're tired or mm. checked out. <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. And can you, you said tables of four, but can you describe other elements of what a collaborative learning space looks like, the ideal ones? And, and even I'd like to yeah. know how many total students, because I'm sure part of the considerations are really maximizing the space that you have there. Right. Uh, so the room I'm in uh, was just constructed this past summer. It seats 132 students. I have about 108 students in there. I recruit seven preceptors uh, for about that number of students. And instead of me just to, or learning assistant could be another term that uh, people are familiar with. And instead of me just sending out an email and saying, I want learning assistants to help in the room. I intentionally email out to students who were struggling in my class and really moved from a D to a B because they're going to be growth mindset. They're going to be talking about that with students. I want them to be credible when they are talking about the struggles it took to be successful. I try and get as diverse a group of, as possible. I always uh, recruit someone who has a learning disability that allows me to introduce them as someone who has one. I'm trying to build all these vicarious mastery experiences by choosing the right team to be in the room with me. And so I will launch off into a lecture and I put air quotes around lecture because uh, I talk for maybe four or eight minutes out of every 50. That's it. And my goal is to create a series of tasks and questions that force even the best students to make tough choices, uh, where it's a misconception that everyone has always gotten wrong. And I put it out there as a question they have to vote on using clickers. And my response rate on clickers is typically around 80 to 95%. My attendance hovers around 95% every, every class. And the students have done pre-work where they've read a short section of the book. They've done a pre-quiz that is informational and definitional. 
and maybe some practical retrieval from something uh, a couple weeks ago that we'll need. But then we launch off and we are doing the heavy lifting of constructing their knowledge together as we work through the series of tasks. And I might have 18 questions in a 50 minute period. And with 95% attendance, is that something that is a portion of their grade or is otherwise required in any way? Yes, uh, attendance is, depending on the class, 5 or 10% of their grade. And you talked about 80% or 85% participating on clickers. What are the mechanism? Are they actual physical devices or is this something on a smartphone? So originally I was doing voting cards that had an A, B, C, or D on them. And then, because I'd been burned by technology early on, I, I tried the clicker technologies and it was a spectacular failure. So I just walked away from it. And then two years ago, I co-taught with a, a colleague of mine who was uh, a new instructor in this um, large classroom environment. And she had used clickers before, so she got me to use turning technologies. Uh, I've also used Top Hat um, more recently, but um, I like the ability of it being anonymous. And I like that it's unfiltered by me. Um, I'm not putting my spin on their answers. I have actually a set of turning technologies clickers. It feels like they're quite dated. I don't, I don't yeah. know to what degree they have upgraded their devices. Actually, the last time I looked at it, it looked very similar, if not identical to the ones I had. But it is really nice because it's a simple about credit card size device. Mine have zero through nine numbers. Mine don't have any, any letter input, just the number. Well, I suppose the numbers have just like phones have letters underneath right, them. So you right, could select right. an A or, or one or whatever, but not like you're actually typing out words or anything like that. But yeah, really seamless as far as that goes. Although I will tell you, <laughs> I think I have 60 of them. So changing the batteries was never fun because the <laughs> batteries, you know, they're never going to all go out at the same time. And then it did take a little bit to then reconnect them back to the the main hub. I forgot yeah, what yeah. that's called. Yeah. So things have, uh, have progressed. So um, our students are required to buy them as freshmen mm. and, and they might never use them, but I use them heavily. Uh, and I also enable them to use responseware. So if they're on their laptop or their phone or their iPad, they can give the same kind of responses as they would on that device. And so the students are bringing their own. Um, okay. It, so, yep, I, all that is just I, I show up and they have them. <laughs> whether whether it's the credit card size device or whether it's the software on their phone or correct yeah tablet oh that's wonderful and and tell me a little bit actually I want to I want to just rewind for a second I'm, I my curiosity was piqued when you said a test has one question yeah can you without obviously you're not going to tell me all your <laughs> test questions because then we're really going to be open but can you give me an example of what a test question looks like or, or how sure. like I'm trying to figure out how that would be enough to prompt them to demonstrate such a body of knowledge yeah uh, so uh, I'll use one that I use now as an in-class example and it's coming up in about two weeks so my wife and I give each other unusual Christmas presents so one year she gave me all the pistachios from one tree from this farmer's field and I savored those over almost nine months. I would eat like two pistachios in an evening while I was working. And I was throwing away the, the packaging and it said, our pistachios are dried to 7.7% moisture content. And I said, fascinating. I wonder what pistachios start with. And they start with about a 31 to 33% moisture content. And so then I Googled um, the largest, uh, the world's largest pistachio crop it comes from Iran. And so the question I wrote is Iran's pistachio crop last year was blank billion tons. And those nuts have 33% moisture content and they're dried to 
approximately 7.7% moisture content. What would be the volume of air that would be required to dry all of those pistachios? State all assumptions. So it involves knowing the ideal gas law. It involves knowing Reynolds law, which is vapor liquid equilibrium. It involves doing a mass balance. It involves doing unit conversions. It is six chapters of content. Wow. Wow. I absolutely am so glad I asked this question. In my head, I was thinking, I do try to be logical with the order I ask questions, but that I'm so glad I got rewarded for asking a, a little bit of a tangent or backtracked question. So thank you for that. Now I just want to talk about pistachios for the rest right. of our conversation. It was fascinating because, you know, I passed out this exam and this ripple goes through the room. I was at a lecture hall. It's like, oh, one question. <laughs> and then People did really well on it, though. Once they settled down and realized how all the pieces were integrated and how it was pulling things in. Um, and I love also that that real world practicality of really pistachios are related to my major. Mm-hmm. No, that's what I love about it. And then it disconnects me with you. And that's so now I know something more that it makes you more human. And as a student, I would feel this guy He's married, he's got such a creative wife, and they have these cool Christmas, but you know, it would, it would just make you seem way more approachable. And then like you said, that the content's more relatable. Could you talk then a little bit about, you said you, you rattled off a number of concepts that they need to demonstrate and therefore state their assumptions. Yes. What, what would it look like if I were to take your exam and maybe either forget to mention one of the assumptions that I used? Or is it even possible to answer the question without using all of them? And so how does grading work? And, and how do you yeah. make your evaluation as objective as you can? So I have a very elaborate grading rubric. Uh, the exam that the students just took on this past Monday had 32 or 33 discrete decisions that they had to make, all to get to like one number at the end. And so when I graded all of them, I could just sit down with the rubric and I could do all that. As our program tripled in size now, we used to graduate 26 and now we're graduating 88 because we've been very successful at retaining students through these active learning strategies. Um, now I recruit a team of my learning assistants and we all sit down together and I buy two large pizzas and we grade for about three hours and there's a lot of questioning back and forth of how do you interpret this? Um, if the student used the fact that they assumed the atmospheric pressure was one atmosphere when they used Reynolds law, does that count as stating it explicitly? And what evidence of student learning and mastery is buried in that mess that they give us at the end of the 50 minutes? And so there's a lot of questioning from my grading team at, in real time as we're trying to evaluate. And then there's also the safety net of a regrade process um, where if a student sees the solution and they felt their work showed something that we didn't see, then uh, we address it at that point. A lot of partial credit. Yeah, that whole process that you described, I think the technical term that they use in some accrediting bodies used for this, I think they call it calibration, grading calibration. Yeah, yes. Pretty sure. And just by doing that in a group helps to coach and shape the people who are participating in the grading. And they can even probably help you sometimes see where, oh, I might be being too hard on this. Or you might be, uh, sometimes I will get, I'll see what's called the halo effect where Oh, but because they started out really strong, then I start to look for things that aren't there sometimes. And so that, that must really be helpful to have a group of people participating. 
And it's way more fun. You know, grading solitary and alone, you get frustrated. And, you know, when we're sitting there and we, we all, all the exams are de-identified and they have an ID number on them. I don't know who they are. The students, the, the precept learning assistants don't know who they're grading. Could be their best friend. It could be a sibling. You, we don't know. And, you know, when we're sitting there grading as a team, we're like, oh, come on, come on. He's going to do it. He's like, oh, man, they messed up the last minute. And it's so much more fun grading when we are kind of celebrating the successes or we're commiserating oh man, this person didn't even start anywhere. Oh man, we, we need to get them help. So what is it that they're taking? Are they, is it a paper exam that they're writing yes. on? Okay. And then how do you go about making sure that we, I don't know who's grade, who's test I'm grading? Yeah. So I print out 120 cover sheets that have one through 120 on them and that becomes their ID number and they put their name on that piece of paper and then we collect that before we even collect any of the exams. So we have all the cover sheets are um, given out. Every student has a unique ID number that they then put on their exam and then they take their exam on paper with pen or pencil with calculators it's open book open note um, they really need to know how to use all their resources and then they turn in that stapled copy of all of their work with their sheet with that id number on it that we don't even know what it was because we already collected that mm, interesting interesting and yeah. I want to now fast forward. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm going to go on that fun adventure with you. Let's fast forward. We were talking about the active classroom and you started to describe your learning spaces to us. Could you talk a little bit more? You mentioned speaking just about seven to 10 minutes per 50 minute increments in your class. Tell me what that looks like. I'm in your class. I've got a clicker or I've got my phone with the software on it. Describe that hour or 50 minutes to me. Right. Uh, so the first 30 seconds to 45 seconds, it, literally I have a timestamp on my PowerPoint um, in my head. This slide is going to take one minute. This slide is going to be seven minutes because this is a longer activity. And then, and so I have this timestamp on my slides that tells me how, how fast I need to be going to get done at the end. Um, so the first slide is a word scramble. It's the topic that's going to be that day. Um, and so tomorrow's topic is equilibria. We're in the middle of vapor liquid equilibrium or equilibria and Q is going to throw them off. They're going to have to fill in some blank letters and figure out what the word is. I then uh, describe the objectives for the day and I try and make them as concrete as possible. So for instance, an objective tomorrow would be to be able to identify which streams are in vapor liquid equilibrium for different pieces of equipment. And then later on, when we actually accomplish that objective, I'll put that objective back up on that slide when we're done with that. So students know, yes, I have met that objective. After we do objectives, I pick a news article. Uh, tomorrow's article is about the Legionnaires disease outbreak that happened at Disneyland. That involves vapor liquid equilibrium because their cooling towers are evaporating water and that makes the, the water colder and then that gets recirculated. And so uh, the topic, uh, the news article will try and fit with the topic. Um, after that, we share an internship and the students have to look up either a skill or a detail. Tomorrow they have to tell me the time commitment that the company's looking for. Then students register in their teams. So we've gamified the clicker questions and they're in teams. Uh, there are about five teams in tomorrow's class and they don't know necessarily all the other people who are on their team, but they will register into those teams. And then every question after that is worth points. And at the end, we show which team won. Sometimes there's candy, sometimes there's not. There's always almost, almost always around a high fives. 
It's awesome <laughs> when you end a class, right? You end a 50-minute class and the students are jumping up and doing high fives. Like, that doesn't, that doesn't happen. Yeah. Um, and, and then after we do the internship uh, tomorrow, I will say on a whiteboard, define what equilibrium means with your team. Then I'm going to have them exchange boards and write corrections, and then we'll do a full class debrief where I will cold call. Actually, it's not me. I have a phone app um, that will randomize, and my phone app will pick two or three students who will debrief the class. And then I actually lecture. Um, mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a slide where there are three things I have to explain to them that we didn't quite get um, in a class last week. And so I need to call it out very concretely and clearly. And so on my slides, there's a big red box around these statements that are so fundamental and so important that I'm calling them out specifically, and I am going to lecture about them. Would you so, mind sharing yeah. what the phone app is that you use? Uh, sure. A colleague shared with me, uh, it's called uh, Apple's Oranges. So it's just a flashcard app. And I found a way to download uh, the student pictures and affiliate those into a flashcard database with their names. And so actually before class even starts at the beginning of the semester, I spent about a month and a half studying their pictures and learning names. And so when I walked into class on the first day, I would walk up to someone and say, Philip, it's very nice to meet you. Thank you for responding to my email last week about the question you had. And then I go around and I, uh, my goal is to know every student's name by the end of the first week of class and be able to call on them by first name. I was going to mention that if people have not been listening for a while, I use an app that sounds very similar in nature to what you just mentioned. It's called Attendance 2. And the developer has been really good, even though it's just one guy that, that I think he even might teach high school. And he, but he's kept it up to date. Every time there's a new operating system, this is specifically on iOS, but, but there'll be an update there. And it does allow me to, through Dropbox, sync over the photos of students. One of the things I really like about it is if a student says, oh, what's my attendance in the class? It's two clicks to be able to email it to the student. And I like that a lot, but it also has a lot of random features. So things like randomly calling on students like you used, or even just randomly having groups of students. You want a number of groups or a number of students per group and it'll do all that work for oh, cool. me. Yeah. Cool. And it could yeah, even be groups of students who are present. So if I took attendance in the beginning, then I can have it randomize groups of people who are present or only call on people who are present, which is really a good one. So if for people listening, you might want to check that one out too. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. And let, let's talk about just as we close this part of our conversation, I, I get so excited talking to people like you. By the way, I could talk for hours and hours, but probably we need to keep our show similar to uh, people's commute time. I wonder if you would share for someone who this this would just be a complete 180 in their teaching. They're like you, who was an excellent lecturer. They, they, right. They're really, really good at lecturing. They want to start this, but what would be some low-hanging fruit opportunities to get started with this? And especially, I would love it if you would share, how would I know if I was doing it, quote unquote, right? <laughs> like, it's, right, right. it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I'll use my first example of active learning, uh, and it comes up next semester when I'm teaching the next uh, chemical engineering class. It is called the psychrometric chart. Uh, it has seven axes that are jammed into two dimensions onto one piece of paper. And there's a lot of detail there. And I used to lecture on this, and then I would solve a lot of example problems, and students never really got how to use this very powerful diagram. And so the first time I did active learning, I picked the psychometric chart and I put it up on 
gasp, I'm now I'm going to show my age, on the overhead projector. (laughs) (laughs) And I just asked the students, how many axes are on here? And I wasn't doing formative assessment back then. I just wanted engagement. But now I realize, now in the me and this time frame, uh, almost 20 years later, that I was doing formative assessment. People were saying, what is an axis? Like, wow, I didn't even know that they didn't know what an axis was. <laughs> okay. mm-hmm. um, how do you identify what an axis was? And, you know, we went through and I then explained each of the axes and I showed with the ruler where things were and I showed the, where the words and how you identify that this axis is different from that one by the shape of the line being different or the dashed or not. And I knew I was doing it right when, you know, I was working with seniors after they'd had that course two years ago, and I gave them a, a, a chart I used for my research. And I said, oh, and you want to use this? And they said, stop, stop talking. And then the students huddled together. And what they did is they talked themselves through what the axes were, what the units were. And once they had identified the important information in that figure, the new one that they'd never seen, I knew I taught a transferable skill. Mm-hmm. And it's like, wow, okay, I never realized that's what I was doing when I was asking them to identify axes. I just wanted to engage them with the, the figure. One of the things that often happens when people start having this realization, mm, this lecturing thing, the telling is not teaching. Right. Mm-hmm, so I need to start asking. It can feel really, really awkward to ask a question in the class. And so people get almost punished for having done it. And then it reinforces their belief that really telling is teaching. And I wanted to mention, this has been talked about at least a couple times on the show, but we've been at this since June of 2014. So I don't expect that everyone has listened to all the episodes. It's called the eight second rule. Yeah. When you ask a question, whether it's a group of faculty you're speaking to or a group of college students, you ask a question, you count one, 1,000, two, 1,000, three, 1,000, all the way to eight. It is incredibly rare that I will ever get to eight seconds. In fact, most often it's because students know about it and they're just messing with my head because they think right. it's fun to do. But because right. there's a number of things that students have to go through, processes in their head, right? First, I yeah. have to process, what does Paul mean? What, wait, like you said, what is an axis? <laughs> there, there might be, and you might even find if you started to pause, someone answering your question with a question. I can't tell you how many axes are here until they know what one is. So you might find even some engagement by if you left enough space and quiet that you start to uncover where, where their questions are that they never used to ask you before, but it really does take some time and discipline. And what you're actually doing is conditioning your students. Oh, he actually wants an answer from me. Oh, wait a minute. I have to think in here. Oh, this silence is uncomfortable. I don't like this silence. I think I have an answer, but I'm not sure I'm right. Is it safe for me to share an answer? I'm not sure if it's right. Right, exactly. So lots of stuff there. So clickers help a lot because Mm. I can see how many students have responded. Um, The other thing I like to do, I like to, you just said it, uncomfortably long. Um, I will say to students, I'm going to pause an uncomfortably long amount of time. And I want you to then ask me any questions you have. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it, it makes it fun for me. It makes it comfortable for me because now I just told them, yes, it's all it's going to be awkward, but use this time. 
Oh, that's great. I love how you're explaining it to them and helping through that. Well, this is the point in the show, even though I could talk for hours and hours with you, but this is the point in the show when we each get to give some recommendations. And I get asked often, whether it's on the podcast or people emailing me about imposter syndrome. It's one of those funny things that I thought where like, this must just be me. And then I realized there's a whole sisterhood and brotherhood of people out there that struggle with imposter syndrome. And there was a really good blog post. It's very short. So I'll just read it. It's from Seth Godin. Seth Godin is famous in the marketing entrepreneurship space. I'll read it to you. And then Paul, I'll pass it over to you. Or you're also welcome to comment on Seth's Seth's uh, imposter syndrome post. So here it goes. It's rampant. The big reason is that we're all imposters. You're not imagining that you're an imposter. It's likely that you are one. Everyone who is doing important work is working on something that might not work. And it's extremely likely that they're also not the very best qualified person on the planet to be doing that work. How could it be any other way? The odds that a pure meritocracy chose you and you alone to inhabit your spot on the ladder is worthy of Dunning-Kruger status. You've been getting lucky breaks for a long time. We all have. Yes, you're an imposter. So am I. And so is everyone else. Superman still lives on Krypton and the rest of us are just doing our best. Isn't doing your best all you can do? Dropping the narrative of the imposter isn't arrogant. It's merely a useful way to get your work done without giving in to resistance. Time spent fretting about our status as imposters is time away from dancing with our fear, from leading, and from doing work that matters. Interesting. So, you know, as, as I, uh, I hear that, I'm thinking of a lecture I gave last week where I had this big mathematical error in the middle. And, you know, I've taught this with these slides for three years now, and a student calls me out. And, you know, I'm in the middle of trying to monitor what they're saying while keeping on track. And I realized that the student is right. I've missed, <laughs> I've not ha- added a number I needed. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I'm recording this un- in Panopto in real time. And I just say, Nick, thank you so much for pointing out my he- human failings in front of everyone. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> and then I just laugh and the students say, yep. And I, and I apologize. And I say, and this number is wrong for the rest of today. I'm sorry. And it's on every single slide. And it, just being resilient and being able to not get du- like buried in this, I'm an imposter, but you know, I'm human. I, I, I'm fully in growth mindset. And so if I had a recommendation for a faculty member who wants to really re-engage with what it's like to be a student, pick something really hard that they want to do and start doing it. Uh, so I just started learning the piano and uh, rock climbing in the last two years. Uh, rock climbing, I'm terrified of heights, so that's giving me a whole new growth mindset. And you know, I can go into class and I show students pictures of me going from trembling next to the the wall and not being able to climb at all to me making it 35 feet up and then rappelling down. And that was on the first time I went rock climbing. And then asking the students to think about their own experiences and whether they are fixed mindset whether I was just lucky or I was born good at this, or did I have to create a safe space and become successful by becoming comfortable and getting students to really reflect on that. So if a faculty member wants to really relearn what it's like to be a student, pick something hard they've always wanted to do and start doing it. 
It has been such an honor to get to talk to you today. And I really appreciate the team over at AQ for introducing us. This is the first in our formal collaboration together. And I knew you'd be great from the second that they passed your name over, but you even exceeded all expectations. I've been so energized by our conversation. And I'm also looking forward to being able to read their deep dive with you and and learn even more from you. Thank you so much for asking me really cool questions that I love thinking about. And I hope other people start to think about the same things and realize that we, we are the ones who design the experience that allows students to be successful. What an energizing conversation I am going to be the rest of the day just thinking about all of the ways in which Paul described really transforming his classrooms and bringing the learning alive. So thank you, Paul, for your time and just for being willing to share with all of us what you do in your classrooms. And thanks to all of you for listening. If you have yet to subscribe to the weekly emails and you want to get the links to the things that we talk about on these episodes, as well as a weekly blog post about either teaching or productivity, you can subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. And I'm looking forward to the next couple months. I've got great guests coming and I'm sure there'll be some spontaneous ones too. And just thanks to all of you for being a part of this community and to listening and looking for opportunities to improve your teaching. See you next time.